good morning. Welcome to chapel. Our first announcement, we actually have some guests with us this morning. We'd like to welcome our red carpet visitors. Can you give them a hand? So welcome to campus. We hope you are enjoying your time. Um, a couple other quick announcements. The Fusion applications are still available. You guys have about one week left if you're interested in participating to sign up for those. Um, our trips this year will be to Mississippi and to California. And the applications are all online along with the information. There is a cost to each trip, but teams will be doing fundraisers together. Also, the summer ministry team applications are now open as well. Um, stop by the Spiritual Development Office if you would like some more information or to pick up an application for that. Those will be due November 30th. Um, tonight, we have Gospel Explosion, so be sure to go out and support, support your teams. And just a reminder, for next week, we have class chapels on Wednesday. So the freshman class will be in here, but each class will be at a different location. We'll have signs posted around campus um, so you know where to go for that. And uh, for our last announcement, we also we have a new chapel team um, that will be with us this morning. Could you give them a round of applause as they're preparing? And we just want to take a moment as we kind of begin to enter into worship to be reminded that this is a safe space to come as you are, um, that we are all worshipers as we gather together in this place. Um, we'd like to celebrate the courage of those that are willing to lead us. I don't know if you've noticed, but it can be an intimidating group of students to, um, to lead together. Um, but be, just be mindful that chapel is a safe space, um, and it's also a place where we can really celebrate um, the differences and diversity that we have amongst our student body. Um, I don't know, one thing that I learned most in seminary was that we learn about who God is by the experience that we have with one another, and especially with those that are different from ourselves. Um, so may this also be a learning time for each of us as we, uh, as we gather into worship, as we encounter um, other students that are within us amongst the pews, um, but also those, we have such a diversity of preachers and speakers and um, worship leaders and all of that. Would you join with me? Would you stand as we um, enter into worship this morning? <clears throat> God, we are once again so thankful for this space um, that has been carved out in the midst of our um, crazy busy week, crazy busy semester, um, and crazy busy lives. God, I just um, celebrate each of these students, um, staff, faculty, visitors that are gathered here this morning. Um, Lord, we come before you as worshipers, and um, Lord, we, we know that you are in this space with us, and um, that, Lord, you are our audience of one. I ask that you would be with this chapel team as they lead us into worship, Lord, as we um, celebrate you. May our hearts and minds be focused on who you are, God, your faithfulness in our lives, and for that we give you thanks and praise. Um, we come before you this morning as your humble servants. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wow, someone just called me by name. I feel very special. Um, I want you guys to pray for me this morning. Uh, I've been out working from home sick all week, battling flu-like symptoms. Uh, it's funny, when you're married, um, I, I come to my wife and I'm like, I'm really sick. And she's like, you're such a weak sauce. Get over it. And uh, to this day, every day of this week, she still holds that I'm battling a really, really bad cold. And I'm like, I didn't get my flu shot. I feel achy. She's like, stop whining. 
go drink some more water. So um, I am feeling a little weak, and this is the first day where I haven't been hacking my lungs out. And so uh, we're going to pray for each other. I'm going to pray for you, and like we did last time, if you feel comfortable extending your hands, um, feel free to pray for me, um, both for healing, that God would be in this moment, and that he would also uh, just speak his word today, um, this morning. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as your, as your people, God. And as we meet in this place, I pray that you would let your presence be felt here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be open uh, to hear what you have to say. Lord, I'm concerned about that more than anything else. That your words, that your heart, that your desire for ENC, Lord, for the students who are here, for the visitors, faculty, staff, administration, God, that your desire and your will for this campus community would be lived out in ways um, through us, Lord, and in us. And so as we gather around your word this morning, I pray for clarity and truth and power. Lord, will you speak as only you can? We give ourselves to you in the name of Jesus, I pray, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Well, the reading of God's word this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, starting at verses 25, going to verse 37. Just listen. Hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he's asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, Jesus replied, and how do you read it? And this expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will surely live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so this expert asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him and had compassion on him. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you and pay for any extra expense this man may incur. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asked the expert. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning... um, We're going to be continuing on our series on unity, and we've been talking about that here at ENC uh, for um, some time. But before we jump in, uh, we have a couple special guests that I want to introduce to you guys. Um, Can we give a hand to Lindley and Chris Moser? Will you guys stand really quick? Woo-hoo! Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Um, Earlier in the semester, they were here uh, talking about this movement called Next Gen NAS where basically we're trying to rally church planters and future church leaders 
And they're here now, um, and they're going to be doing a training tomorrow. And so if you're interested at all in church planting, or if you're interested at all in church leadership or leadership development, they're the ones to talk to. They're both doing some pretty incredible work um, all across the country and back home in Texas where they're from. And so feel free to go up to them, ask them questions. Um, You know, the event is tomorrow all day, and so feel free to talk with them and get more information about that. But if you want to be a church planter or a church leader, definitely go talk to them. Nod your heads if you got that. Thank you. Thank you. So we're continuing in our sermon series on unity. And the last time I was up here, we, I preached about uh, the upper room experience from Acts chapter 2. And I said that as a campus community, we have to gather and pray and wait until God shows up and moves. And I was so moved by the response of all of you in that particular chapel service. Uh, we had over 200 people come up to the front and grab these pieces of red t-shirt that I had cut up and wrote, pray for ENC. And uh, it's been so moving and humbling to see how you guys have gathered as a campus community. I've seen those pieces of t-shirts in people's bags. I've seen them on people's desks. And it seems like all over, God is doing something. And when he is gathering and uniting our hearts together. I want you to know that your prayers aren't in vain, and I do believe that God is going to continue to move. And so continue to pray, continue to seek after him, and let's, let's wait until God moves and seek God together. This morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan that I've read for you, and this is a very familiar story, but I'm really hoping that you guys don't check out, because I think that, that there's something new in here that we can see um, And I want to propose to you that this parable actually is talking to us about living and walking in unity. And so as we dive into the scripture, we're just going to go right away deep into it. We're going to be observing three principles about living and walking in unity. And the principles are, the first one is the principle of helping my neighbor. The second one is the principle of discovering my neighbor. And the third one is the principle of becoming my neighbor. (laughs) And so first, let's talk about Helping my neighbor. If I pass out, someone just give me water or something, okay? I'm feeling super weak right now. Dave, Dave, you got me. Now, very, very similar passage of scripture. It's one that we all know. And just to recount the events of what happens, right? Jesus is approached by this expert in the law and he wants to test him. So he asks him, what must I do to gain eternal life? And so Jesus in true rabbinic style and form responds with the question, well, what is written and how do you read it? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this man gets it right, right? He's quoting from Deuteronomy. When, when Moses had given this law, this was right there. When Jesus came and actually said, you know, that this was the greatest commandment, it wasn't a new teaching. It was something that was in the law the whole time. But the Pharisees and everyone had missed it. But this guy, he got it right. He had the right answer. He actually knows what he's talking about, right? He's not just messing around or trying to test Jesus. And you would think that all he has to do at this point is walk away. Point for the man. Point for the legal experts. Because Jesus actually says, yeah, you've answered correctly, man. Do this and you're going to live. But Jesus, it's interesting because he must have known that this was going to happen. But he waits there and the man doesn't walk away. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? And the scripture said that he wanted to justify himself. And to answer this question, Jesus shared a parable. 
Now, a parable is a simple story that is used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. If you read all throughout the gospel, Jesus speaks in parables all the time. So this isn't necessarily an event that really happened, but it's a story that Christ is using to share a deeper truth. And the parable is an interesting one. Jesus says that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Now, Jesus' listeners would have known that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very, very steep road. It was about 17 miles long, or about 27 kilometers, and it descended 3,300 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was the perfect one-way narrow passage for robbers to be there. And the reason why, you know, they would have also known that this passage was one that was commonly done was because Jericho was a country where priests would dwell when they were not on temple duty. And so this was something, a road that was traveled a lot. And in ancient times, like I said, it was the perfect setting for robbers. And so this man is traveling on this road and he gets attacked by robbers. It says that he's stripped of his clothes, that they beat him and they leave him for half dead. Okay, where I come from, this guy gets jacked up. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, it's not just the little, like, oh, okay, like, here's a prank, like, whatever, like, you're embarrassed now, Snapchat, YouTube, your life is over. No, this is like, he's like dying, okay, on the side of the road. And Jesus explains that three people pass by him, but only one of them stops to help. And the very obvious question is, well, why didn't they help him? Who just passes a man who's on the verge of death? Leaves him there, half dead. Well, I think if we look at these two people who pass by, we can find something about the reasons for why we don't stop to help those who are in need. The first person was a priest. Now, you would expect a religious official, right? A priest, a man of the cloth, someone who went into God's presence daily to stop and help someone who's dying. And I'm sure the listeners probably thought that to some extent. And when we think about priests not helping those in need, we're like, whoa, that's a major problem. But in Jesus' time, some of the listeners may have understood why the priests may have stopped. You see, in Numbers 19.13, there's this verse about priests. It says that if they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. And priests then must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, they are unclean. Their uncleanness remains on them. Priests had these religious duties. They had to go into the presence of God. And per instruction, via Moses, they had to stay away from dead corpses. If they were to go and touch a corpse or a dead body, they had a certain period of time in which they had to get cleansed. And if they didn't get cleansed, then they were forever cast out from Israel. So I know that our knee-jerk reaction is, wow, a priest of all people not stopping to help someone. That's horrible. But honestly, the priest was just doing his job as he was walking by. Maybe he was thinking, well, if I touch this guy, I don't know how long it's going to take, and I may not get purified, and I'm a priest, and I have to do my job. And so I'm not going to help someone who's in need. And I think that's the first reason why many of us don't help people who are in need. We simply think, it's not my job. You see, at first you're like, wow, a priest not helping someone. Big deal. But then when it's like, well, it wasn't his job, almost sounds justifiable, doesn't it? 
We think, oh, my job is to be a student, or my job is to be a faculty member, or my job is to be a staff member or an administrator. My job is not to help those people who are dying around me because I have more important things to do. I'm too busy. And you're probably thinking, JD, are there even people here on this campus around me, around us who are dying? Of course there are. See, physical death is not the only form of dying that we see. There are people in this community who are half dead spiritually, financially, emotionally, and relationally. I hear stories of people, students, who don't know God at all or they're really struggling in their faith. Or stories of students who can't pay their school bills so they're thinking about not coming back. Or staff and faculty members who have trouble making ends meet and are thinking about maybe having to to go to food stamps or do other things. I meet with students who are struggling with depression and they want to take their own life because they feel like their faith or their friends and community, there's no answers that seem to help. Or maybe they turn to destructive habits and bad decisions. I see students sometimes who are so lonely and they don't feel like anyone sees them or cares for them at all. Now, not all students are like that. ENC is a great campus for the red carpet visitors. I want your students to come here. But I also want us to be real. There are people in our midst who need our help. And they're half dead, dying. And sometimes our answer is, it's not my job to take care of them. I got to be a student. I got to be a faculty member. I got to be a staff person. I got to be an administrator. It's just simply not my job. That's maybe what happened with this priest as he's walking by. Maybe he's thinking about his job and his need to stay clean. But he's not the only person who kept walking, right? Jesus says that there's a second person, and he was a Levite. Now, the question I had is, wait a second. Weren't all priests Levites? Like, aren't they pretty much the same person? And it turns out the answer to that question is, well, yes, and that no. It turns out that, yes, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The Levites were a special tribe that God had set apart to serve as priests in the tabernacle and later in his temple, but not all of them served as priests. They helped, though, with maintaining the the. The, uh, the temple courts and the tabernacle grounds during the time of the tabernacle. And they helped the priests perform their duties. They helped prepare offerings. They kept things clean. I mean, back in those days when you were bringing offerings, okay, there, were like, there was a lot of blood, sacrificial stuff. Okay, so imagine, like, this is our public worship space. It's nice and clean, and it's technologically good, and we have music. But back then, there's like animals and blood being poured out, and it's not good. And there's, they're being burnt, and so there's smells and all this kind of stuff. Well, the Levites were the ones to deal with all of that. And so the priest is like, I'm doing my job. And the Levite is, is, is coming after him. And maybe the Levite was thinking, you know what? I'm too busy for this. I have too much that I have to do. Or like I mentioned earlier, people would go from Jerusalem to Jericho because uh, they weren't on priest duty. So maybe the Levite, I don't know, got like Levite vacation time or something and was like, I really can't deal with this guy who's dying because I need to go and rest and have some fun. And I got to go and like, party with my Levite friends. I don't know what they do, but maybe that's what he was thinking. The priest says, it's not my job. The Levite says, I'm too busy. I don't have to, I have way too much to do. And I have to follow the priest maybe who's running ahead of me. The only person who stops is the Samaritan. And it's amazing, right? The Samaritan doesn't say, oh, it's not my responsibility or, oh, it's not my job or I'm too busy. But this guy completely stops out of his way. He takes him, he bandages his wound, he, he pours oil and wine, which is like a disinfectant during that time, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, 
takes care of him through the night. In the morning, he tells the innkeeper, here's money for like last night. I'll be back. And whatever this guy needs, food, whatever, I'll pay for that. Who knows how long it took for this half-dead man to recover there. But this Samaritan stopped everything he was doing to help someone in need. And I think the point is pretty obvious. When someone is dying around you, it doesn't matter if it's your job or not. It doesn't matter if you're busy or not, or if it's not a part of your life or it gets you out of your way. I think the Samaritan's example shows us that we are compelled to stop and help those who are in need. It's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're called to do. And so the first principle about living and walking in unity is helping my neighbor. The second principle is discovering my neighbor. And at first glance, right, it seems like, okay, sermon is done. We've talked about helping the neighbor because that's really what this whole, like, sermon is about. But I want to propose to you that I think there's something deeper going on here. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to completely miss it. And I think the the connection to the second point is really connected to the question that the man asks. Who is the neighbor? Now, initially your thoughts are, well, J.D., you just talked about helping people, so the neighbor is helping someone who's in need, right? Wrong. Let's think about this. The man asks, what am I supposed to do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, you know, well, what do you read? The guy says, love your neighbor, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus says, okay, go do that. The guy says, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this parable, right? But at the end of the parable, Jesus asks a question. He tells the man, who proves among these three to be a neighbor to the man who had fallen? And the man replies, the one who showed mercy. So let me ask all of you again, who is the neighbor that Jesus is referring to in this passage? And who's the one who showed mercy? The Samaritan. Yes. Thank you for ENC proving that you guys are smart. Yes. (laughs) Pat on your back. Using my words. Why is this significant? Because this sermon has a lot more to, to offer us than just helping those people who are in need. Jesus is saying you need to love the neighbor, and he's telling this Jewish expert of the law, the neighbor is the Samaritan, not the one who had fallen. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. In ancient times, they hated each other so much, right, that when Jews would travel through Samaria, which was a part of their land, they, instead of going through Samaria to where they had to go, they would go completely around Samaria. They avoid the people altogether. This is why when Jesus is traveling and he goes to meet the woman at the well in Samaria, the disciples are like, wait, you're going you're gonna to go there? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go there. They hated each other. Now, why did they hate each other? Well, they hated each other because of two things, because of race and religion. You see, the Jews and Samaritans had a deep history. And history... Historians record that the Jews actually saw Samaritans and called them as half-bred pagans. What does this mean? How are they considered half-bred pagans? Well, the Samaritans were actually a part of the nation of Israel. They descended from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And when the nation of Israel split into two different kingdoms, right after the time of Solomon, they were the northern kingdom. Nation of Judah was the southern kingdom. 
And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was taken over by Assyria. Religion majors, you should know all of this stuff. I know it's taught. And while they were there, the people of Israel did a couple of things that they were told not to do. They intermarried with the Assyrians, and they assimilated some of the religious practices of the foreigners into their religion. And, you know, the story goes that Judah was taken over by Babylon, and the land was all left, you know, crazy. And at some point, everyone ended up coming back. But when people, the, the nation of Judah came back from Babylon, they, there were inhabitants there. Their people, or so they claimed to be their people. And uh, they worshipped God a little differently, and they looked a little differently. And so to this day, there's this great divide between Jews and Samaritans. And Samaritans believed that their religion was right, that their religious practices were right. But they believed that, people, that God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim instead of the temple in Jerusalem. The same people arguing over religious practice. Okay? And like we've also said, arguing over race. They were half-bred inbreeds, is what they thought. Harsh language. In one of the stories that Jesus says, you know, there's a Samaritan woman begging at the, at the table for a miracle, and Jesus is like, he, he refers to her in the term that they use, not that he was using it, but he says, I can't give what's meant for the people at the table to dogs. The Samaritan woman says, well, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And Jesus has mercy on her. But that's the cultural landscape we're talking about. Jesus is now saying to this Jewish expert of the law, I want you to love your neighbor to gain eternal life. But I want you to love that Samaritan. The one you hate. The one you disagree with. The one that has wronged you. The one that you think you're better than. That person is a person that I want you to love. Even during this time, as Luke was writing this letter, it says in the beginning that he was writing to a person named Theophilus. It was during the time of the early church. The early church was divided also over worship and race. Peter, with a group of new Christians, were saying, well, not people who believe in Jesus, they're saved. They have to follow these Jewish rituals. And Paul was saying, no, everyone is free. There is no Jew nor Gentile. Same issues, race and religion. You see, we think that the issues we face, because our generation is modern, we're cool, that, that everything we experience is new or it's current. But the truth is that this debate and argument has been going on for thousands of years. Now, why am I talking about this? Because you guys know that these are the challenges we face when we walk in unity together. We talk about issues of race and religion and, 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 and figure out how they affected groups of people over history because they affect us, this group, right here, right now. You see, Jesus is saying, don't just love the person that's in need. That's easy. Don't love the person that's like you. That's easy. But love the Samaritan, that person who's different from you, that person who doesn't understand your world, doesn't even want to, that person who hates you, that person who thinks they're more right, maybe that person who's wronged you or hurt you in the past, Jesus is saying to love that person. One of the greatest stories of Christian forgiveness I've ever seen was the story of an Amish community in 2006. Some of you guys might know this story. But in 2006, a man, into, a man went into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and he shot 10 people. Five of them died and five were badly injured. This man then shot himself in the schoolhouse after that, committing suicide. 
all over the national news. Big, big deal. What's so incredible and amazing was the response of the Amish people that very same day. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness publicly towards the killer. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the killer's family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, right, the killer's family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. And at the shooter's own funeral, there were more Amish mourners there than people who knew the killer himself. It's unbelievable how they responded. And a nation watched as they acted in ways that didn't, make, that didn't make any sense. And when asked why they did this, they said, we believe in a God who shows grace and forgiveness. They lived and walked out their belief. You see, Christianity isn't a religion that says an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It compels to a deeper love. And when Jesus is telling this guy, hey, the neighbor that I'm talking about is not the one who's fallen or needs help, but it's the Samaritan. It's the person who's different from you. He's saying, love that person. So who's the Samaritan in your life? Who are the people who are so different from you? It's challenging to even think of being in relationship with them. You see, we need to discover those people. It's not just about loving those who are like us or, or those who are even in need. It's about how, hey, loving those who are different from us, our enemies, and those who hate us or, or those we hate. So the second principle is discovering your neighbor. And understanding that it's not just someone who's hurting. So the first principle is helping my neighbor. The second principle is discovering my neighbor. The third one is becoming my neighbor. Now, the third principle is so powerful, but we miss it sometimes if we don't pay attention. It's in Jesus' last statement. He asks this question, right? Well, who was the neighbor? And the man says, the one who showed mercy. The man can't even say that it's the Samaritan. He's the man who showed mercy. And Jesus says this statement, go and do likewise. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, love that guy or person that makes life difficult for you or is completely on opposite ends of you on different issues. But Jesus is now saying, go and live like them. Be like them. Become them. And it's like, what? Go and be like the Samaritan? Live like that? Walk like that? Talk like that? It's one thing to love your enemies, Jesus, but to go and become like them? To be one of them? To know them that intimately? Well, how can Jesus say this? See, I think many of us, are, many of us when we look at this story, we <clears throat> place ourselves uh, as if we're the Good Samaritans. We're the ones who are supposed to help those in need. And I've said that part of my sermon is, yes, that's part of it. But the truth is that that's the wrong perspective. You see, if we really were to judge ourselves by that standard, we find that we fail. We fail at helping those who are in need around us because we're too busy or it's not part of our job. And we don't discover those who are different from us and value and treasure them for who they are. And if we're honest, we fail. But the truth of the story is that there's only one good Samaritan in all of Scripture, and that's Jesus Christ. The proper place for us to place ourselves in this story is that we were the people who were broken up on the road, robbed of our inheritance because of sin, broken and lost, left for half dead. 
And Jesus Christ in heaven sees us. And he decides to leave his heavenly home to become one of us. To go to a completely not even foreign land, foreign dimension, time and space. All of that changes. He comes, he lives among us, he walks among us, he knows us. And then he gives his life so that we can live and be united with God. Jesus, like the Samaritan, comes and binds our wounds. And then he takes us to places of safety within culture. And he says, you know what? I'll pay the price so that no one else has to. He is the good Samaritan. And because of him, we're all now brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can have a spiritual connection that runs deeper than the color of our skin. The only way for us to walk in unity and to walk in truth is by understanding that Christ came and did what we couldn't. And because of him, we can now be transformed to love and walk in a radical way that's incarnational. Where it says, I want to become like you and you want to become like me. Because we're all trying to become like Christ. Now, let me share a personal story to close to kind of talk about how I think this plays out. Because I feel like a lot of times... We're not going to have these dramatic moments to prove love and to prove what it means to walk in community. So I'm going to share a very, very personal story with you. Okay. And I'm going to do it in like three minutes. So I grew up in a very interesting childhood. I'm half Filipino, half Korean. Okay. I go by JD, but my name is Jedediah. If you didn't know, that's a Jewish name. Now, how my Filipino dad and my Korean mom came up with Jedediah, a Jewish name, I have no clue. Okay. But I grew up in Korea ostracized, kind of feeling out of place as a half Korean, Korean, half Filipino kid. I was like bullied every day. I went to the doctors because people would always dislocate my elbow. And so like every good Asian mom, my mom put me into martial arts and I learned how to defend myself. Okay? That happened. Now, I didn't know my biological father. He was uh, a very, very bad man. So another story, but we'll leave that for now. So I was raised by my mom until I was about the age of five. And then she met this white soldier while she was working at the army base, and she married him, and he adopted me. So my last name is Branky, which is German, okay? <laughs> now that makes no sense whatsoever, right? Jedediah, Kim, Branky. It's Jewish, Asian, and German all at once. I grew up in an interesting family. My sister, blood sister, half-sister, she's uh, half Korean, half white. She's got red hair, hazel eyes, right? The doctors freaked out when my mom gave birth to her because they're like, Asian woman, red hair, makes no sense. But it happened. My parents adopted five kids while I was growing up. I grew up on army bases all my life because my dad was in the army. And at one point, this is a true story, uh, my parents owned a beauty supply store, Okay. Now, for some of you guys are like, oh, beauty supply, okay, I get it. No, like the beauty supply where you go and there's like cocoa butter and hair weave and wigs, okay? And FUBU, okay? Anyone know what FUBU is? For us, by us, okay. I grew up with FUBU, like me and my brother were two Asian kids and we wore these extra large shirts and we, we just thought they were large shirts, but I guess they were styling because that's how FUBU works. But that's the family life I grew in, okay? So German last name, Hebrew first name, I'm Asian, and then I'm working part-time in my parents' black, uh, you know, beauty supply store, culturally mixed, okay? But here's the thing. I never felt out of place my whole life until I went to a Christian college in Tennessee. I never felt out of place my whole life until I went there. And I went there... And uh, I found, wow, there's not a lot of Asians around here. 
Okay. And everyone would come up to me and they'd be like, hello, how are you? And I would say, uh, I'm fine. Yeah. Oh, you speak English. Your English is really good. Okay. Where are you from? Texas? No, like, where are you really from? Texas? The funny thing is, is that uh, everyone said that I look like a particular person. Now, Kanan, show a picture of me really quick. Uh, Okay, that's me. Everyone said I look like Jackie Chan. Go into that. Okay, I don't really look like Jackie Chan at all. Okay, maybe if we did this, Kanan, go to third one. Then maybe I would look like Jackie Chan, okay? But everyone said I look like Jackie Chan. Everyone asked if I knew martial arts, which I did, but it was always kung fu because they always assumed that all Asians were Chinese, which we're not. They asked all of these questions, okay? And they were like, you're different from us and we don't know you. And some of my friends said that you're the first Asian I've ever seen in person, like in the flesh. Now listen, I felt ostracized, left alone. I felt completely abandoned. I could have been offended, right? I could have said, you know what? Forget all of these people, these racist people, right? It was scary driving around that neighborhood. I would drive around and there were like, like, like Confederate flags hanging from people's houses and stuff. It wasn't the kind of place where an Asian guy could get lost, even though I was driving a Dodge Stratus. And I could have just like stuck in my room and did nothing. And I could have said, forget them. They don't know me. I don't know them. Forget it. But I decided that I wanted to live out my faith in an intentional way. So I went to Cracker Barrel with them. Um, And it's interesting because Cracker Barrel is an amazing place. It's one of my favorite restaurants now. And every Cracker Barrel in the country always looks the same, okay? There's something to be said about their consistency. But I ate their food, I talked their language. I heard their stories of why they didn't know Asian people. And then, after building some relationship with them for some time, I said, hey, I want you guys to come with me to an Asian restaurant. So we went to an Asian restaurant, and they said, okay, we're going to get Chinese food, right? And I said, no, 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 no. I'll order. And we ate sushi together for the very first time. And some of them were like, what is this? And I'm like, I'll tell you after you eat it. (laughs) But I did it. I did it. And they ate it. And we had many more encounters where we shared our life together around table, food, conversation, talking about our differences, engaging in community together. I left Tennessee, and one of the most like, meaningful moments of that time in my life was about a year or two later, I got a picture via Facebook. And my friend said, hey, some of my friends from high school, from my redneck town, their words, not mine, are in town visiting Cleveland, and JD, we're taking them to go eat sushi for the first time. They were taking their friends to go and eat at this Asian restaurant for the very first time. You see, I think living in community kind of looks something like that. This place is very, very different. And I know that there's a lot of challenge that comes with being in community and being different. Um, There was an event on campus recently that kind of challenged some of that. For those of you guys who are part of this campus community, you know what I'm talking about. And I just want to say two things. One, it's never okay to tear down anyone in this body of Christ. Amen. 
It's never okay on any level because we're meant to build each other up, to love each other. The second thing I want to say, though, is that we, we are a campus, and so there's things being done, taken care of. You'll be hearing more about that. But we also have the opportunity to respond as a Christian community. I'm not saying that the feelings of anger and sadness are unjustified. I'm just saying, think about what it means to help your neighbor, to discover your neighbor, and become your neighbor. To engage in meaningful ways and to come to worship with open hearts, to come to tables with open hearts. And so my challenge to you as I send you off now is very simple. One, if you have been someone who have been struggling with these kind of differences while you're on this campus, have an open mind. Go and connect with people who are different from you. Hear their stories. And if there needs to be reconciliation, then let reconciliation happen. And secondly, if you're someone who's like, J.D., I really want to be a part of that, but I don't know what to do, go to an Alana meeting. Go talk to someone. Just sit down and say, hey, what can I do to learn more about who you are? Because I don't really know. And who knows what they'll do? You might be able to introduce a part of your life to them, and they might be able to introduce their part of life to you. But I believe that we could be a campus community of people who are helping our neighbors, discovering our neighbors, and becoming each other. And so let's do that. Amen? Let me pray for you as, you, as you're dismissed. Father, I thank you for this moment that we've had to talk about your word. I thank you, dear God, for um, your truth. I pray that you would help us to live as a community who is unified, Lord, not through the color of our skin or worship styles, but, Lord, through the love and blood of Jesus Christ. May we be defined, dear God, by a deeper love. And may the world see that, that we have greater compassion for each other and for people outside. Give us wisdom and grace to do that. I pray for these students as they go now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You're dismissed.